And good morning again, everybody. Welcome to Renew. My name is Dallas, and uh, thankful that you are all here this morning. And just w- one update I just wanted to share. It was a, it was a, was a blah, 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 that thing. That's how excited I am. Uh, <clears throat> the Fellowship of Christian Athletes has a new director, uh, Trevor Bloom, and he has started about four months ago, I believe it's been. And um, this month alone, he has met with 300 students in Stanislaus County. And he invited me to go to Davis High School this past Thursday. And uh, he was going to present the gospel. And he didn't know how many students were going to come up or receive Christ. So 61 students showed up and 23 accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. So, Yeah. It was very overwhelming in the best possible way. So even when the bell rang, we were still praying for people and passing out Bibles. So continue to pray for these students and uh, for Trevor Bloom. Um, He also uh, comes to our youth group on Wednesday nights, and he's going to speak in a couple of weeks. So be in prayer for that. But I just wanted to share that because I was so excited. So with that, um, we are going to continue on in our series, The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, in Hebrews 11. So if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, verse 32 and 34. And then we're actually going to read Psalm 142. This is the second part of looking at David as he's a hero. But first we're going to read Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 3, and then drop down to 32 and 34. And I'll be reading the NLT for Hebrews and NIV for Psalm, but you can follow along. Hebrews 11, verse 1 reads, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And in verse 32, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. And then if you'd go to Psalm 142, a psalm from David. And it reads at verse 1, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. A brief prayer. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word and the opportunity to come together and worship you through fellowship, through song, and now through your word. We pray that you prepare our hearts, Lord. Use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat.
So if you've been following along with us, we've been taking several weeks now to look at the characters that Hebrews 11 talks about and why they are in the hall of faith. And I titled the series, The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. My hope, again, if, if you've been with us, is to look at the good things, the bad things, and the ugly things. And faith sometimes works out just like that. God is always good. Sometimes we're good. Lots of times we're bad. Lots of times ugly happens. Sometimes we do the ugly stuff. And this morning, we're actually on part two of King David in, in this series. And I thought it would be a benefit for all of us if we use this psalm or psalms as our guide as we consider King David's life. More than anyone else, by a long shot, David is the one guy in the Bible that we can read the account of his life, we can read the narrative, we can see what happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly that took place, and not only read that, but we can also read the thoughts that were going on in his head. We could read his songs, his poems, his prayers after key moments in his life. And that's what Psalms is. It's, it's a combination of his prayers. Not He didn't write all of them. We'll talk about that in a moment. But have you ever, has there ever been a time when you were reading the Bible and someone does something, you read the story, and you think, why? Why would you do that? You probably may have even thought that about yourself. Why, why did I do Have you ever said something and then quickly you just wanted, as quickly as you could, put it back in your mouth? I don't hope so, but I think so, right? Like, that's me. Like, oh, that was dumb. Or someone does something and you really want to know the motive behind it. Why, why did you do that? Why would you consider that? Why, why did you think that was the best way? And then after that, when someone is totally defeated or totally on the victory or totally on the high, then you want to know what's going on in their mind. And again, like no one else, David is that for us. Again, if there's ever been a time when you read through and you wanted to know what David was thinking, he told you in the Psalms. And, and quickly, uh, just, just a little background of Psalms, just so that way I, I hopefully it helps where we're going this morning. King David wrote 73 of the 150 Psalms. Some people argue that he wrote two more. I don't know. 73 is a good number. I, I think people wanted it to be half, but whatever those people who like the line straight. But... Anyway, 73 Psalms, and, and actually Jesus quotes Psalms 16 times throughout his earthly ministries. And specifically, you can link them to David's Psalms. Perhaps the most famous or the most memorable one, the one that pops into my head the most, is Psalm 22. It's when Christ is on the cross, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting Psalm 22. So as we consider this, the link between King David, the king, the Messiah of the Old Testament pointing to Christ, what we will see, hopefully, in Psalm 142 as we go through it, we will see this overwhelming sense of David's life. I know that I say this every week whenever I touch a character in Hebrews 11, David could have his own series and one day we will do it and, and the giving him just two Sundays does not do him justice. So just so you can follow along in my thought process, as I was going through, we ended last week right before David killed Goliath. Now, be honest, who was disappointed we didn't get to read the good stuff? I mean, I, I mean, we could have went to three, but I was hungry. So, but that was a joke. It's okay. But so 
And then I was considering, well, where do we go from there? We ended the service, if you were with us, with reading Psalm 51, his plea after his adultery and the murder of Uriah. Adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah. And then I was considering, how can we possibly cover David in one more Sunday? And then as I was reading through Psalms, I was considering, I think perhaps Psalms 142 really will do a good job of connecting who David is. And last week we talked about he's a man after God's own heart. And what does that mean? So as we consider Psalms, just just so we can think of Psalms, Psalms is a collection of songs, poems, prayers throughout the Israelite history. And they were organized and put together right towards the end of the exile when the Israelites were in the Babylonian exile. They had collected them over the years. I don't know how they smuggled them through, um, but they hid them. And then the rabbis at the time put them in an order, and they organized the Psalms in five books. That's why in some of your Bibles you'll see book one, book two, and so forth. And each book ends in a similar way. It will end somewhere along the lines of making a statement, may the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever. Amen and amen. May he be glorified. Psalm 1 and 2 is just an intro to the Psalms. Um, And what you will see as you read through Psalms is the first two and a half books of the five is heavy on lamenting. Oh, woe is me. I am a slug, a sluggard. Don't even look at me, Lord. And then it rises up to praise and joy. And then the latter half is about praise and joy mixed up with lamentation, lamenting. And I think Psalm, again, 142 paints a good picture of mixture of a mixture of that. In very broad strokes, if you just consider Psalms, it begins, Psalms begins with a reminder, the book one, excuse me, of Psalms begins with the end, the end that God is going to fulfill his covenant of faithfulness. Not only God's promise, but the response of his people, plus the promise of the true Messiah. You will see Christ in the Psalms if you read it. Book two opens with the hope and longing of the return of the temple. Remember the destruction of the temple, then it's rebuilt, but also it's pointing to the risen return of the Messiah. And then book three is a promise of the kingdom that's promised to King David and also the kingdom of of our Messiah. Book four is a proclamation that God is going to come, the troubles of ups and downs. And book five is the confirmation that God hears your call. And I'll stop there. I really love Psalms. I read Psalms every day. Uh, I'm not saying that to brag or anything because there's a lot of hope. Because when I read through Psalms, that's why I close the service 99% of the time with a Psalm. Psalms is the best way to express being a human. Have you ever felt like you were joyful but sad at the same time? You were angry but joyful? You had hope? But you had despair, you were angry, and you were sad, you wanted to throw rocks, but yet you sat on your hands, that's Psalms. And and what David does, I think, really brings to heart why he is in Hebrews 11, he has faith. So truly what you see when you read Psalms is an open, open and honest, clear expression of our heartache and our love for the Lord ranging again from sadness, depression, conviction, lamenting, praise, hope, renewal. And really we see life. 
And what we see in life is we see the nature of prayer. We see this friction, I don't know how else to describe it, but this friction between the reality of what we are currently experiencing, the good, the bad, the hope, and the future of Christ, and yet the hope of change, and yet we live in this world, we are in this world, but not part of the world, and this friction, and the more and more that we pray and cry out to the Lord, we'll see that there is friction, but yet it's this dualistic nature of joy and fear that God is, but yet God is with us. So quickly, I just want to slowly read Psalm 142 again, and then we'll work through it, and I'll give you a little history of exactly what's happening in Psalm 142 at this time. So just consider this friction. Just consider, pay attention to the ups and downs. Um, one commentator, right when ADHD was first diagnosed, said this was David and it's beautiful. Because it's all over the place. But with that said, let's read Psalm 142, all seven verses, and consider this friction. And David says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry. For I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me. For they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Do you see that contrast? Back and forth, back and forth. See, what, what has happened here is David uh, is anointed king, 15, 16, 17 years old, somewhere around that. Then a few years later, perhaps two years later, he kills Goliath. And after he kills Goliath, all of the people are cheering his name. They even write a song. And they say that David, or excuse me, Saul, the king, the current king, has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. If there is someone that is hurting with pride, who is so self-focused, which Saul is now looking inward all the time, this anointed king who's no longer anointed king, but still the king, when he hears the lady sing the song, he gets mad. Well, I'm the king. And I don't like him, so he pursues him to kill him. And over the, over the next several years, 10 years in total, he, Saul attempts to kill David again and again and again. And where we picked up last time, we were in First Samuel and we were reading that account. And now he's best friends, that is David, is best friends with Jonathan. Can you imagine your best friend's dad wants to kill you? Oh, by the way, way your wife happens to also share that same dad who wants to kill you. So if you think your in-laws are bad, I'll just leave it at that. But Saul now sends soldiers to kill David, the hero that defeated Goliath. 
And now he's on the run. And specifically, he's hiding in this cave of Adullam. Adullam is in Gath, and Gath is actually the hometown of Goliath. Run that through your mind. You kill the giant, and then you go to his hometown and hide. And this cave, Adullam, it also means retreat or refuge, which is a play on the words in which David uses. Did you notice how many times he said, my refuge? He's making a play on, on the word. Now, just, for, just to help illustrate this, I have uh, two pictures. The first picture here, I believe, is a picture where uh, this is the cave of Adullam. There are many entrances. You can walk in. The highest point is roughly 30 feet, and, but then it goes all the way down to 5 feet. So it's spacious. We know, and we'll read here quickly how many people can fit in it. And it goes, and, it, and there's several tunnels and different directions to go. And then the next picture here I want to show you. This is standing outside of that entrance. Now, if you notice on your left-hand side, you see that road that ends all the way out in the horizon. If you just go to the right, that is the exact place where David defeated Goliath. Now imagine you're hiding in the cave. We don't know how long he's actually hiding in the cave. That every morning, let's say, you, David comes outside and he stands at the edge of the cave and he looks out and thinks, it wasn't too long ago that I defeated Goliath. Just right over there, those hills, for this king who now wants to kill me. It's very interesting to... To be able to consider that, it's almost, I don't know if anyone here, we talked about this in our life group last week, does anyone keep trophies from when they were a kid? I do. I mean, they're still in the box. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I don't bring them out and say, look, I was the eighth best goalie in the league, <laughs> right? And there were only eight, okay? But do you keep them? Why do, why do you keep them? Why do you, does anyone keep notes or letters or cards that people have sent you? Right? I mean, that, maybe that's more acceptable. Right? <laughs> One person in our life group mentioned, I keep my trophies for my mom's sake. Liar. <laughs> you keep them for you. But you know, that, that's kind of a trophy for David. He comes out and he sees, I remember when God used me and I defeated Goliath for the king, for the people. And now here I am, the king wants to kill me because of songs, because people are worshiping me. So as we consider that, consider putting your, yourself in David's place. You have these trophies that no one remembers or appreciates. You've done all this for someone, for a family, for a country, for a nation, for a city, and they turn their back. So this morning as we consider the good, the bad, the ugly of David. Let's just take a look and see. I really think Psalm 142 lays out a couple of things. I think David cries out where to go when we are in trouble. And second, he tells us what to believe. And then finally, we'll look at what to expect. And again, we'll be jumping around and back and forth and seeing what happened. But quickly, uh, we can look at 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 2 real quick. So that way we can see the narrative. This is the setup to where he is in Adullam 
hiding. 1 Samuel 22, just verse 1 and 2. So this is after David pursues, or excuse me, this is after Saul uh, pursues David. And it says, so David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming. And look at who comes with him. Men who were in trouble, who were in debt, or who were just discontented. Until David was the captain of about 400 men in that cave. There's 400 men. And what David does right away is he cries out to the Lord. Just like blind Barmatis, when we read, when we were doing our series, when we were looking through encounters with Christ, remember blind Barmatis, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone said, shh. So he got louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. And what we see here is someone who can cry to the Lord. Sometimes I think, and I'm speaking to men, but I'm assuming this applies to women too. Sometimes it's easier just to do something, anything, than to go to Christ. It's just easier because you feel like you're doing something. You're responding. And if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, I I suggest that it can be easy for us to fall into the trap thinking that we should be better off in our walk than we are. And there's a little bit of fear of coming to the Lord. King David is God's anointed. And he's on the run. And and just quickly, I'm going to just move quickly through this. Notice verse 1. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice. I pour out before him my complaint. Just quickly in verse 2 when it says, I pour out before him my complaint. In Hebrew, uh, a better translation, I think, would be, I pour out like a puddle before the Lord. Meaning, I am nothing before the Lord. I have no strength to stand on my own. I am just nothing. I am but skin before I pour it out, my complaint. He recognizes in verse 4, I have no refuge. Verse 5, I cry to you, Lord. 6, listen to my cry. I'm in desperate need. See that? He goes right to the Lord. He's He's hiding in the cave, but he's not hiding from the Lord. He goes on in verse 5 when he says, I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge. Remember what the name of that cave is? Adullam. He's saying, I am in a refuge. I am hiding, but I need you to be my refuge. And also it's a play, continuing on, on the times that he's in. So during the time of King David and up until right after the destruction of the second temple... There were places called houses of refuge. There were three on the west side of the Jordan, three on the east side of the Jordan. They were called a house of refuge. And you could travel and go into a house, have a meal, and sleep for three days, no question asked at all. They didn't ask you if you were on the run. They didn't ask you if you were in trouble. They didn't ask you if you did the trouble. Nothing. So he's playing on the words, and, he, and also in the picture, if we would be able to look to the right of the picture and see, you could barely make out 
three of those refuge on the road. And he's saying, I actually have all of these refuges that I could go to. I'm stuck in this cave. I'm hiding in this cave. But yet, what I'm actually doing compares little to the refuge I have in you. So he's recognizing that. He's also seeing that there are, he's, when he says, my portion on the land of the living, on verse 5, he says, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. What he's saying is, I have nothing. I have people all around me, but I have no one. I think perhaps when you can feel your loneliest is not when you're in your room by yourself having a good cry. It's perhaps when you're in a room like this with lots of people around you. And that's what, and we read in 1 Samuel 22, he has 400 men. And actually, if you turn the page, we won't go there, but you can just to make sure I'm not lying. But 2 Samuel, he talks about another 200 men join him. And he feels like he is completely alone. There is no one there. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Also, whenever he talks about you are my portion, within the verse 5 again, I say you are my refuge, my portion. That really can be translated to you are my inheritance. And why would an inheritance be so important at this time? Because if you think about David's life, David is the youngest of the seven sons of Jesse. Remember, he was the one out in the field taking care of the sheep. And in that culture at that time, the youngest got next to nothing or nothing of an inheritance. He had to go and make his way. And then not only that, he is married to Saul's daughter. He is also best friends with Saul's son, his father-in-law wants to kill him. He's saying, I have no inheritance. And an inheritance, what is, when you think of inheritance, what do you typically think of? Something that you will get when someone dies. That's why in uh, the, the prodigal son, whenever he goes to his father and says, give me your inheritance, give me my inheritance, he's essentially saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. I'm off. I'm going to treat you as dead. It's the same play. It's the same understanding. David is feeling completely abandoned and there is no hope except in Christ. He's saying, you are my hope and you are my security. Now again, going back on verse 5, I've really focused a lot, obviously, on verse 5, if you can't tell. When he's talking about that land of the living and I had mentioned he has 400 and eventually of 600 men. And what kind of men came with him? His brothers, his other relatives... And then people who were in trouble, all kinds of crimes, because they saw him as a house of refuge. Those who were in debt, remember if you were in debt at this time, you were thrown in jail until you could pay it off, which makes a lot of sense because, well, you're in jail. How are you going to pay it off? And those who were just discontent. Now, imagine if you just wanted to be alone, and these are the people that show up with you. For all of the introverts in here, you're like, ew, go away. The extroverts were like, well, for a little while, maybe. Do you know who these 400 later 200 men become? His mighty men. His mighty men of valor. This means that at some point, David 
discipled them. He led them. He pointed them to God. Many commentators talk about this team of men who grew in strength, valor, and character because they watched King David seek the Lord. Everyone there would be willing to lay down their life for their king. It just reminded me to pay close attention to the people who sit with you when you're in your cave. Sometimes you can feel alone and you think, if only I had this or so-and-so. But if, if that's you this morning, pay attention to the people that are in your cave. And for those of you who are sitting here thinking, yeah, but I don't even have one, that cave is pretty deep. Keep looking. And then, and then he's so honest. King David is so honest. In verse 6, he says, Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Wait a minute. This is the guy that said that he could fight Goliath because he tells the story of Saul. When the lion and a bear came and they snatched a lamb, I pursued them. And then I like New King James and King James. I snatched him by the beard and clubbed him. Someone like that, you mean you are in desperate need? He says, rescue me from those who pursue me. They are too strong for me. No one wants to admit that they're weak, that someone else is strong, stronger. Can you imagine? There's not really a good comparison in our Western world given our democracy, but can you imagine a king, a sovereign lord, if you will, is sending all of his resources to kill you, you would feel weak too. He said, I am so low, I need you. They are stronger than me. That's later on when we read throughout the New Testament, especially when Paul, I am in in my weakness, he's made strong. This is where this comes from. This is the recognition that we have to come before the Lord and say, here I am and I am weak. But you see how if we go back up and now look for Christ in, in, in this, he says, I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. Verse 3 says, when my spirit grows faint within me. Where have we heard about complaints before in Christ? In the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his trouble, his heart, his, Christ's heart is broken. Same word, same feeling, same, Lord, if there's any other way. David's recognizing that no one is acknowledging him. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate and Herod and the righteous leader, he was alone. David feels like no one is willing to stand up for him, like Christ. As I was thinking about that, Going back over that story, reading the account when Christ was standing before Pilate. I was thinking about, well, where were all the people that Jesus healed in the last three and a half years? Where were his disciples? And then before, and then it didn't take too long for me to get off my soapbox to realize, well, how many times have I turned my back on Christ? Verse 7, he goes on and says, set me free from this prison. Some translation says, set my soul free from this 
prison that I may praise your name. He's recognizing that this is a prison, a temporary prison. Just like Jesus was rescued from the prison of death in the tomb. And he's crying aloud. So if, as we consider that, who do we go to or where to go? We go to Christ. We bring our, our, our cries to the Lord. We're not too prideful. We don't try to ideally do something on our own. And, but what to believe? We believe that Christ will do something in response. I'm crying out because I know you care. The Lord of the universe cares about me. I would not come to you if it didn't matter to you. That's what David is saying. Being a pastor for a little while and doing pastoral counseling, some of the comments that I hear and I'm not making fun of because I can make those same comments and have is, well, does God really care about this situation? Yes. Why? Because he cares for you. Well, why? Because he made you. Well, why? You know, it sounds like a kid. Why, 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 why? But keep asking those why, 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 and eventually you will see that, that God ultimately says, you can trust me, I sent my son. Again, going back to that verse 6 when he says, listen to my cry for I am in desperate need. That's what Christ said in Matthew 26, 38. He says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And not only David is on the run, but he must also hide his parents in another nation. It's bad enough that he hasn't done anything wrong, but his parents, his own parents, are with him in this cave, and eventually he has to go and drop them off. Let's just quickly read 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel 22, 1-2 is what we read uh, we know his other relatives joined him soon as brothers and all of his other relatives joined him. If you look at verse 3, later David went to Mizpah of, in Moab where he asked the king, please allow my father and mother to live here with you until I know what God is going to do for me. So David's parents stayed in Moab with the king during the entire time David was living in the stronghold, roughly 10 years. So you think, okay, well, he, at least this is how I imagine it. He, he kept waking up in the morning. He would go and look and see where he fought Goliath. He'd go in and see his mom and dad sleeping on the cave floor. Oh, they have to do this because of me? But I haven't done anything wrong. So then he goes to Moab, and you're like, oh, okay, who cares about Moab? Well, Moab, bad dudes, not great people. Why would you go to Moab? Because Moab... The Moabites and the Philistines fought so much, almost more than they fought anybody else. It's that whole, my enemy's enemy is my friend. So Moab is fighting this huge battle with the Philistines. Moab is feeling a little pumped up because Goliath is dead. They're like, oh, well, I mean, if that shepherd boy can do him, let's whip him up. So he goes before Mezpah in Moab and says, can I leave my father and mother? And I imagine, we don't know, I would imagine they're like, yeah, you killed Goliath. We're going to whip him. Yeah, stay here. Leave your parents here. It just reminds, should remind us again, our situation does have an impact on others sometimes. Not our sin, but our obedience. How many times have you felt 
called to do something. The Lord was leading you from somewhere, and you're like, all right, I'm ready. And then you look and think, but I have a family. Who's going to take care of my kids, my wife, my husband, but I have a job. I have people depend on me. I will say, if you're in that situation, the Lord is preparing a way for them too. Again, David has killed Goliath and the Philistines. These songs are going around and around and around and around. And Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his tens of thousands. And Saul is really upset. And then his question is, is does God actually care about me? I cry out to the Lord. He says he's my refuge. That refuge means shelter. Not only shelter, but blanket covering. He says, attend my cry with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my cry before him out loud. I think that's important. This is such a simple idea, but I think it's profound. It was really profound to me this week. Most prayers in the Bible are out loud. And then someone recorded it. There are a few that are written out prayers, but most prayers are in the, that we read in the Bible were someone who yelled them out and recorded them. Can you imagine if no one recorded their prayers or yelled them out loud? We wouldn't have them today. But if the prayers, sometimes we just think, oh, I'm just going to go in my car and sit, which is fine, and just kind of grumble to the Lord. Express your feelings to the Lord. The benefit of saying it out loud is to hear it out loud. And yes, granted, the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf, Romans 8, 26, and we don't know what to say. But perhaps one of the best part about David's life that we see while we're reading Psalms is the fact that he essentially says to God, here are all my emotions, here are all my experiences, full-scale, unedited I don't even know what I think. It is entirely different when I take all these expressions and I say them out loud to the one who cares. It is a great blessing to be able to pray out loud. And it's not to inform God of what is going on. He knows. But it's really, I wrote down, it's to inform our heart and our soul that there is a God that hears them. I know that's true for me. Sometimes when I just pray in my head and we're having a conversation with the Lord, there's something different than whenever I say them out loud. It's almost as if when I say them out loud, I'm telling my heart and my soul, someone is there to hear them. Don't keep them quiet. There's no expression of our experience that we shouldn't feel that we can't bring to God. Christ doesn't only want to hear the good. He wants to hear the bad and the ugly, and we can confess that. And I do believe that as followers of Christ, for those of you who are followers in Christ and here this morning, sometimes we can get to the point where we get in bed and we feel bad that we're getting in bed with a broken heart. It's almost that we're not allowed to have a broken heart if we are a Christian. So we pretend everything is okay. That's not what God wants. 
He wants us to go to bed and say, God, today was hard and it was awful. It was yucky. It was gross. Whatever words you need to use. And to be honest with you, God, I'm, tomorrow, I'm afraid that tomorrow when I wake up, it's going to be just as ugly tomorrow. But I'm coming to you, Lord, because you are my hope. And I don't even know what that means sometimes, Lord. This is for all of us. I offer this for all of us who are believers in Christ. And those that believe in Christ, there is hope in someone. That's why going back to Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand the entire universe was formed at God's command that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. But faith shows the reality of what we hope for. We hope in a person, not a thing. One of the things that drive me bonkers is when I hear people say, I'm sending you good vibes. I don't even know what that means. I mean, are you going to shake me? If you use that, I apologize. But don't use that anymore. Just pray for me. Good. I don't know. Anyways, that wasn't in my notes. That was a tangent. Can you tell? Anyways, but I'm just thinking that, that for those of us who are believers that Christ died on the cross for our sins, we have hope in a living person. For those of you this morning who, do not, who have not put your hope in Christ yet, Put your hope in Christ. I really appreciated what Dr. David Jeremiah said. He said, David was a man after God's own heart. Maybe, I was going to try to emulate Dr. David Jeremiah's voice, but I can't. But just picture it, if you can. Maybe, David is a man after God's own heart. Because he was willing to pour out his entire heart to the Lord. No secrets. No hidden chambers. He just poured out his heart. I would suggest that we can do that, especially in times of despair and discouragement. No holds barred. Just let it out. Look at how David talks to the Lord. I cry out aloud to you. I have no refuge. I'm crying to you, Lord. You know, when we read this, we can almost think, I can't believe he would say that to God. You should. That's what he wants. Here's the thing. Even if you don't say it out loud, God knows what's in there. God is listening and he is responding. So cast out the logic. If it's leading you astray, cast out your feelings if it's leading you astray. If we hold back any burden, then we are hiding from him as Adam and Eve did in the garden. We are hiding either because we think God doesn't care or that it's too much to admit or we're too ashamed or we've gotten into this routine that we can handle things on our own. I got it, guys. Or we feel that we should be a lot longer on the path that we are on or perhaps maybe even scarier we pretend to be something that we wish we were. 
But look at David's example. He cries out to the Lord. And what he believes in, he does believe that the Lord will have mercy, verse 1. That he watches over him, verse 3. Even whenever he recognizes in verse 3 that he's on the path. It says, in the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare. Saying, Lord, I'm doing the right thing and there's still bad guys. We shouldn't be shocked that there's bad guys on the road of obedience. And he also says, you are my refuge. And ultimately, he says this in verse 7. And this is what to expect. He says, set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Notice in verse 7 it says my prison. In Hebrew it's a dualistic meaning. It means the prison that he's in in the cave but it also means the prison that he's put himself in because of his thoughts. So think about that. Lord, set me free from the prison that I'm currently in. Set me free from the prison I put myself in. Set me free from the bondage that I put myself in. That I may praise your name. And not only for me, then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. And again, the righteous becomes the mighty men of valor. So as we look lastly at David's life, just consider, has it been a while since you cried out to the Lord aloud, out loud, written him out? Revealing what's in your heart, God already knows. He wants you to know. He cares for you. He loves you. He will be your refuge. He is your refuge. He will listen to your cry. And he is faithful to set you free. And perhaps he won't take away the pain or the struggle, but the freedom of your soul through his son is immeasurable. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for this time that we have together, Lord. And thank you for the gift of Psalms, Lord, to express the sea written in full expression of a heart, soul, the cries, the tears, Lord. Lord, I do pray for anyone in here that it's been a while since they've cried out to you out loud, that lifted up, lifted their voice to you, Lord. Thank you that we can today do that. Thank you for a man in David that was not perfect by any means, but yet um, had this great ability to run to you, to the Father. Lord, that's our... That's our prayer. Lord, will you set anyone free from any kind of prison, either the one they put themselves in or the one that they're in? But most of the Lord, let us praise your name. Lord, we're so thankful for your son that died on a cross. So Lord, as we prepare to sing a few more songs to you, will you uh, just speak to us? And let us uh, in one voice together praise your name. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.